the story, the story is told of a man who was flying over the desert in his, in his plane, and he was flying solo, and he began to run into me, uh, mechanical problems. And uh, fortunately for him, after fighting this thing for an, uh, a number of uh, minutes and what seemed like hours, he forced landed this plane down in the middle of the desert. And uh, fortunately, he survived the uh, crash landing, but unfortunately, he wasn't prepared for what was to take place as far as trying to survive the extreme conditions of the desert. And uh, as he wandered throughout the desert with no water and little shelter, uh, he continued to stumble and, and find himself in a position where he knew shortly without water that he was going to die. And up in the distance was approaching him, and it looked like a person, but he thought it might be a mirage. But as he got closer, sure enough, it was a man who was walking through the desert, and he had a briefcase with him. And the man who was dying of thirst went up to him and said, Do you have any water? i got to have water. And the man said, Well, no, I'm really sorry, but, uh, you know... I don't have any water. He said, well, what's in your briefcase? And the guy goes, oh, I'm a tie salesman, and I've got ties in here, and I could sell you a tie if you want a tie, but I don't have any water. And the guy who was dying said, what am I going to do with the tie? I have no need for a tie. And so I said, well, okay, I'm sorry, and the man went on his way. So this man, as he's crawling through the desert, and what seemed like he was going to die at any moment, he comes across the next sand dune, and sure enough, in the distance, he sees what looks like an oasis. It was beautiful, beautiful hotels, and it looked like limos pulling up to the front of this place. And they were, I mean, it was incredible. And he goes crawling up, and sure enough, it's real. He's, he's crawling up the driveway, this beautiful five-star hotel. His cars are driving in and out, and there's a doorman to greet him. And he crawls up, and he goes, oh, i got to have water. i got to have water. And the doorman said, I'm sorry, but we can't let you in. He says, what do you mean you can't let me in? I'm dying of thirst. He said, I'm sorry, we have a strict dress code, and we don't serve anyone that's not wearing a tie. All right, so sometimes they're really good and sometimes they're, you know, marginal. <laughs> but I liked it, and I'll tell you why I like the story. Quite often, many of us are like this man uh, who saw no need for a tie. Many of us are like that when it comes to studying the Bible. Because we live in a culture that basically says, hey, you know what, what's in it for me? And if we can't see what's in it for us at that moment, we think there is no sense in studying or looking into what God has to say. And I think it's particularly true as we get into the Bible and we begin to study prophecy. Because for many of us, we look at it and says, how does this relate to me? And there's nothing really in it for me, therefore there's no benefit to it. And I want to remind you of what we discussed last time, and that's simply this. The Word of God is clear. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all Scripture, every word in the Word of God is profitable for instruction or teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequately equipped to do all good works. We read in Isaiah 55 that God's word, when it goes out, doesn't return void, that it always serves a purpose, there's always a benefit. And so I get excited and I'm reminded about that as we look at prophecy, because as we go through the book of Daniel, the completion of it, chapter 7 through 12, specifically deal in the area of prophecy. And for those who are inclined to look at it and say, I have no need for that, or what need is there, uh, oftentimes we become just like the man who refused to put on the tie. You know, we don't realize what lies ahead, that there's a purpose and there's a reason and that there's instruction that's taken place. So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Daniel chapter 7 because it's in this particular passage that God will instruct us as he deems fit as far as prophecy is concerned. And I want to make a point, and I hope that as you're turning to it that you don't miss this, and that's simply this. It is never a waste of time to study the Word of God. It is never a waste of time to study the Word of God. That is a promise that God makes Himself. You will never waste your time opening up the Bible and digging in and studying the Word of God. The time that you spend is profitable 
for instruction, for reproof, for correction, for rebuke if necessary, and for training so that what we learn we can actually apply in our lives on a daily basis. So if you're there at second, I mean, at, uh, Daniel chapter 7, we'll read these words, starting with verse 8. If you recall, we left off in verses 1 through 7 the last time, and starting with verse 8, we read this. While I, speaking which Daniel was, he says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth that was uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him, and thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. It says, as for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the cloud of angels, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days as was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all of this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will rise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for, for all ages to come. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which was exceedingly, or which was different from all others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its claws of bronze, and which devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder with its, with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn which came up and before which three of them fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts and which was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the Highest One and the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Thus he said, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all the other kingdoms. And it will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten kings will arise, and another will arise after them, and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. And he will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given unto him into his hand for a time, times, and a half a time. But the court will sit for judgment, and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. 
in this particular passage, if you recall the last time we were, we were together in verses, uh, chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, we noticed that God spoke to Daniel in a dream. And within the context of the singular dream were several visions that we're going to now take a look at as we go through it. But if you recall, the, the dream had to do with the uh, empires of world history or world empires, so to speak. And God was given an outline or an overlay of everything that he has planned for this world. And so he reveals this and communicates it to Daniel through a dream. And as Daniel looks at this dream and the visions within the dream, God is communicating a truth to him, not only to him and ultimately now to us. And he's instructing us for a specific purpose, and we'll look at that as we go through it. But you notice as we go through there, he said that there's going to be four kings or four empires which will arise from the, this middle of the earth, the great sea area we found out was not only the Mediterranean area, but this great sea of humanity, and that God was stirring things up. Over and over again as we go through this passage, we see the words appointed or until the time had come, speaking of the sovereignty of God, that everything that's going on on the face of the earth in heaven and on earth is under the control of God, and God's sovereignty is noticed all throughout this particular passage, that God has appointed for man times and places and seasons. And as we look at all this, we see how true that is. He says and reveals to us the first empire that was to arise. We know from Daniel chapter 12, where we don't have to guess what this is all about. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to listen to the opinions of others. God clearly defines for us what it is that he wants us to know. He says that this head of gold, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, was this first great world empire of Babylon. And it says the first was like a lion, meaning that it was similar to a lion in nature and that it, was, uh, it would devour those who would get in its path, that it had wings like an eagle, that it would be swift in the way things would go about. And he says that as he looked at it, the wings were plucked, it was lifted up from the ground. We know the story of Nebuchadnezzar where he was made to go insane before God for his rebellion and his prideful, arrogant heart before God. And God broke this man and humbled him. And he basically plucked the wings of that empire and, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar ended up crawling around on all fours or sixes for seven years and grazed like, a, like an animal in the fields to show the judgment of God. As after the appointed time, Nebuchadnezzar humbled before God, repented of his sin, and God elevated him again, picked him up like a man, and the Bible tells us that Nebuchadnezzar came into a living relationship with the God who created him. Humbled before God, he recognized his sin before him, repented of it, and, and basically humbled himself. You know, the sacrifices of God are a broken heart, a contrite heart God will never despise. One who is humble before God saying, you know what, I am not God. You're God, I'm not, w what do you want me to do? And that was his attitude. It says that he was, in a, in a human mind was given to it. In verse 5, we're told that a second beast or a second kingdom would arise. And this kingdom we know from history was the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. And what's fascinating, we even saw that case where there was a transfer of the kingdom in, in Daniel chapter 5. We looked at it, we saw it, we studied it. So we know that Babylon ended and the Medes and the Persians took over. And if you look at that, it said specifically there was another beast, a second one that was resembling a bear. It was raised up on one side, meaning one side was stronger than the other. We know from history that the Persian side was stronger, stronger and ultimately took over. And we see that it, it devoured and was commanded by God to arise and devour much meat. What's interesting in verse 6 is we're told that then that kingdom fell to yet another one. And this one was like a leopard which had on its back four wings. Speaking of the swiftness that took place when Alexander the Great, Great and the Greco-Macedonian Empire took over. We know this from history that, that it probably was the most rapid advancement of any kingdom in the history of this world. And what's fascinating about it is this. Any military strategist will point this out. And it basically comes down to this. If you want to win a battle, the secret lies in this. The one who gets there first with the most will win. 
And what's fascinating is if you think about military strategy and bases that are all throughout the world, the purpose of bases in foreign countries is to make sure that a country is in position to be able to get there fast with the most. That's the secret to military success. And that was the secret of Alexander the Great. The one who gets there the quickest with the most is going to win. He says, and behold, after this, and behold, another one speaking of Greco-Macedonian Empire. And then he goes on in verse 7, we read this. And then after this, after this kingdom, after that kingdom, after the next kingdom, after, here's another one. After this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. It had large iron teeth that devoured and crushed and trampled down and the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had on it ten horns. Which fa what is interesting to me as we go through this, you'll notice that the first three kingdoms are noted only briefly, even though their reign covered hundreds of years. But each one got a verse. And what's fascinating about that is when we look at this, there's good reason that God has given much more space, so to speak, much more print to this fourth kingdom. And there's a good reason for it. Because it's out of this fourth kingdom that all of God's future plans for this world will culminate. The fourth beast is given all the attention, and rightfully so. As we look at this, what's fascinating about it is that as we go through this particular passage, we're going to discover that out of this fourth kingdom will come a world leader who will be truly a world leader, a world dictator, a world leader, someone who is basically in charge of the whole world, the king of the world. And as we look at this, this is where God wants us to focus our attention particularly as we look at this, because it affects us today. Not only does it affect us today, but it affects all of us in the near future. But before we take a look at this, I think it's interesting, this biblical portrait that's painted of this particular world leader, uh, it's important to understand that the Roman Empire was never conquered by an enemy. The Roman Empire was never conquered by an enemy. If you'll notice that every other empire that's listed here, or king or kingdom, was destroyed by a successive kingdom. Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians, who ultimately fell to the Greco-Macedonian Empire, who ultimately fell to the Roman Empire. But as you look at this and we see it in context, there's one thing that stands out, and the reason that God says this fourth beast is different than all of the other beasts. And there's some characteristics of this fourth kingdom or fourth empire that's different than the rest. The greatest characteristic is this one. The fourth beast never died. It was never destroyed by an enemy. The fourth beast, or the Roman Empire, though it existed for a thousand years, faded into human history, not because it was destroyed from external sources, but because it fell apart from within. The fourth beast, or the Roman Empire, fell apart because of drunkenness and internal corruption and rottenness, and out of this faint pulse that still exists, we're going to discover that the Roman Empire will be revived one day. And so that beast never died. And as God points this to our attention, we're going to take a look at the fact that out of this Roman, revived Roman Empire is going to come a world leader who will be a true world leader, one like the world has never seen since the days, really, of Nebuchadnezzar. And we're going to see a lot of parallels between the reign of Nebuchadnezzar and that of this future or coming world leader. So as we take a look at it, there's some things that I want to point to your attention. Number one is the entrance of what's called the little horn in verse 8. If you'll notice in verse 8, we read this. Daniel says, While I was contemplating the horns, which are the ten horns that we take a look at there that's explained in verse 7, or the ten horns or ten kings or ten kingdoms, he says, Another horn, a little horn, 
a little one will come up among them, and three of the first horns will be pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great threats. I want you to notice the entrance of this little horn into the whole uh, vision that Daniel's having. The fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 parallels what's seen in the book of Revelation as the seventh head on a seven-headed beast of Revelation, which is fascinating because this fourth beast of Daniel chapter 7 is the seventh head upon which are ten horns that we see as we go to the book of Revelation. There are ten horns on this empire, or as we learned from the last time we were together, these ten horns or ten kings or ten kingdoms will represent ten nations, so to speak, uh, that represents ten countries comprising one future empire. Now, for those of us who live in the United States, it's easy to see and to understand how simple that could take place. Because what we have in the United States of America are 50 individual states, and yet we're under the umbrella of one nation. What we will find happening in the future at some point in time is that somewhere throughout the, in, in the some, at some point in the future, there will be ten nations or ten countries that will join together and form a coalition that will be all under the umbrella of one revived Roman Empire, which is fascinating. You know, what's interesting is that if you think about it, we haven't seen, uh, in our day, we haven't seen a world empire such as Rome, but the world empire of end times will be confederation of these nations. And, you know, and it's not difficult, you know, as I was thinking about this, in our day of acquisitions and mergers, it's really not hard to see how easily that could take place and how quickly that can take place. You know, out of this confederacy will arise an individual who will become literally the king of the world or a world dictator. Now, in Daniel's dreams and subsequent visions, God communicates to Daniel and to us a, uh, what, I was, what I want to call a biblical portrait of what this person will be will be all about or what his characteristics are, his traits, or basically a portrait. And there's six of them that we're going to take a look at. There's six, uh, six characteristics or traits uh, basically that will comprise a portrait of this coming leader. The first thing is his coming. In, the, in verse 8 we see that. While I was contemplating the horns, behold another horn, a little one. You notice that basically the bottom line is when he arrives, he is going to be insignificant as far as the world is concerned. He's a little horn. You know, God looks and says, you know, he's, the, guy's, the guy's nothing. He's insignificant. The world will look at him and say, what's the big deal about this guy? And it'll happen so quickly that people won't even recognize or understand what's going on. You know, as Daniel's trying to understand this whole idea of ten horns or ten kingdoms or ten kings or presidents or chancellors or whatever the leader will be called of these particular nations, he says, while well, I was contemplating these horns or thinking about what, what, is this, what does this mean? He says, another one, a little one, came up among them. Just another one, a little one, came up among them. There's going to be ten, and out of nowhere comes this eleventh one. And he comes up, and he's alongside of them, and we begin to see that there's something different about him. He's insignificant. You know, what's interesting is it's not hard to imagine such an occurrence after you consider uh, the constant change of events that are taking place all throughout the world. What's fascinating as we look at this, money managers today are emphasizing a global market and the numerous investment opportunities that are taking place in Europe. What's interesting, it wasn't long ago that people thought the Asian market would be the hot place. And now you look at what's happening in the Asian market and the Asian communities and they're all, you know, they're all basically taking a dive. And all of a sudden now, we begin to see that you know, the European market may be the place for the investment funds of the future. 
And if any of you are involved in investing at all or mutual funds or any kind of funds that are going on, worldwide funds, you'll notice that any perspectives that comes out talks about the European market and how we need to be diversified because we're no longer isolated as America from the rest of the world and we need to diversify some of our investments. And sure enough, that's what we have take, taken place around us. What's interesting is one of the, one of the uh, letters that was sent out to me uh, basically covered this topic to some degree, but it's fascinating. I think it's interesting to inject at this point. And that is, in May, as of May of 1998, there are 11 European countries that have indicated they will adopt the euro as their common currency beginning in 1999. And I think that's fascinating in light of what we're studying here in the Word of God. Because Austria, Belgium, Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, Portugal, and Spain, as of May of 1998, this past May, have all adopted the euro as a common currency, and they will do away with their own local economies. Now, when you look at that in light of what the Bible teaches and you see what's going on as far as the revision of a Roman or the resurrection of a Roman Empire, uh, all you have to do is look at a world history map and see what nations were involved in the original Roman Empire. Now, what's fascinating about that is, as I'm looking at this, I'm looking at there was Egypt, there was North, there was North Africa, there was England, there was Greece. All of those nations were consumed by the original Roman Empire. Now, when we look at all these things, it's, it's interesting speculation, and, it, and it's important that we're very careful not to speculate or not to get too crazy when it comes to prophecy. But the bottom line is this. We can see world events moving to the point where there's going to be a coalition of European nations that are going to form a huge economic uh, uh, block that basically will dominate the world economy. And that's, in a nutshell, that's exactly what God says is going to happen. And we can already see uh, the, uh, the movement taking place in Europe as these nations begin to adopt a common form of currency. Now, it's fascinating, too, from our standpoint, because as Americans, we're always interested in is how that affects us. You know, if it doesn't affect us, who cares? If it doesn't affect me, what's the big deal? Well, you know what? It is a big deal, and it does affect us, and everything going on around the world affects us, and everything in the Word of, word of God has something to do with us. Uh, not that everything revolves around Americans, but the bottom line is that everything revolves around the Word of God, and we need to go into the Word and find out, well, what's going on here? And what's going on is very simple. And uh, as I look at all this, it's not too difficult to reason as well that, you know, the United States has European connections. I mean, this country was founded uh, by Euro Europeans, whether we want to acknowledge that or not, uh, as far as the European connection is concerned. And so as we look at that, not only do we add the nations that we can, we can you know, deliberately look at and say these were all part of the original Roman Empire, but other nations that were founded by the original nations uh, that were involved in the Roman Empire could also be part of this equation as well. So it's not far-fetched to think that the United States of America could also be one of the ten nations that would join this coalition, and it may be just out of simple need of survival. Uh, so we've got North Africa, you've got Egypt, you've got England, you've got Greece, you've got the United States, you've got any other country that has European connections as far as its founding fathers are concerned. And basically you've got a formula here, according to the Word of God, where ten nations one day will form a European common market, a European economic community, uh, the United Countries of Europe. I don't know what they're going to call themselves, but the bottom line is there's going to be ten nations, and it's going to be a major economic consideration. And so as we look at all that, there are those who even believe, and Christians in Europe believe that the United States not only will join and become one of the ten nations, but actually is the little horn itself. Uh, only because, if you think about it from the standpoint of the United States has always had a policy of being proactive as far as Israel is concerned. There is no other nation of the world that up till this point in history has been as proactive as, for Israel as the United States. 
The second factor as we consider it is, is that the United States at this particular point still is a major economic consideration as far as world markets are concerned and may have to join to save our investments in Europe and in other places. So that's a consideration as well. The other consideration as far as the United States as being one of these ten nations is the fact that up until at least recent history, we have always had a very strong position on human rights throughout the world. And so as a result, the United States, and this is where the downside comes in, is in a, a, a strategic position to deceive the entire world. And as a result, those in Europe who want the United States to be a part of it will be a part of that particular coalition of nations. And so as we consider all these things, we notice that his, his coming is insignificant. What's fascinating about it is you also notice in verse 8, if you want to look at that, is that the first horn, it says he came up among them and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. So somewhere along the line, there's a balance of power that shifts drastically toward this little horn or seemingly insignificant uh, addition to the equation to the point where three of the nations of the original ten nations will be assumed or consumed by this particular nation. And as a result, the balance of power shifts drastically because now, if you just think about it from a sheer mathematics standpoint, you've got seven nations, each comprising only 10% clout as far as the voting is concerned, and you've got one nation now that has 30% of the clout, and therefore it's going to be leaning in that direction that that particular nation, whatever nation that is, is going to have the, the, the clout to make the decisions that need to be made. So as we go through this, we see this biblical portrait of this coming of one who will be a world leader. He's seemingly insignificant. God calls him a little horn. He comes up at first, and eventually what happens is he assumes or takes over this country or this person takes over three other nations that are part of the coalition, and that's basically what we have a picture of taking place. That, too, is not hard to see. That happens all the time. Look how quickly East Germany was swallowed up by Germany. It can happen overnight. And as we look at this, we're going to see basically some other things that God points to our attention. That's number one. First of all, look at his characteristics. His characteristics, this biblical portrait of this coming world leader. First we see in verse 8 that he has the eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth that utters great boast. The first thing that God wants to point to our attention is that this is a human being. This is a man. It is not an ideology. It is not a, uh, you know, a thought. It is not a philosophy. It is a human being. It is a man. He has the eyes of the man. Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, but Chuck, see, it says he, he, he's, he's got eyes like the eyes of a man. The bottom line is, is that remember what I told you the last time we are together. You always interpret Scripture with Scripture. And fortunately for us, we don't have to guess if this is a simile or a picture of some idea or some philosophy. But it is a human being, and the Bible clearly says he has eyes like the eyes of a man. So he's specifically referring to the fact that he has eyes. But more importantly, 2 Thessalonians eliminates any consideration that we have that it's anything else but a human being. Because in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, we're told that he is called the man of sin, the son of destruction, the man of lawlessness. So we know right off the bat that he is a man. It's interesting, if you want to stop and think about something, I was studying this going through it, it's interesting to think that if Jesus Christ came back today for his church, that man is already in power somewhere in the world. Isn't that interesting thought? 
if Jesus came today, and there's nothing that says he can't, if he came today, we know with confidence, based on the word of God, that that man, that human being, that coming world leader, is already in power somewhere on the face of the earth. The world doesn't recognize that because the world doesn't recognize the word of God. He will ultimately demonstrate that he is a vicious beast, that he will slaughter millions of people. And you say, well, how can a person come into office and deceive so many people? I see we no longer struggle with that concept in the United States. Isn't that sad? But also, I mean, if you really want to look at recent history, consider the fact that Joseph Stalin was in office and he had treaties with many nations all around the world. And Joseph Stalin, while he was meeting with nations and signing peace treaties and coming to agreements as far as trade and everything else was concerned, literally murdered 30 million Russians in his own country. So we don't have to go too far back in human history to see that it's easy for the world to be deceived. We saw the same thing happen with the reign of Adolf Hitler in Germany while he was negotiating and, and forming this wonderful so-called utopian society, he was literally destroying and murdering people as he sat down and smouted at a negotiating table with members of negotiating staff throughout the world. So it's not that hard to see that the world can easily be deceived by a human being and by a leader who promises anything and everything that the world wants to hear. The point is this, the world will not recognize this leader as a beast but will embrace him and, in fact, will ultimately worship him. Why will that take place? Well, because another characteristic, if you go back to the Word of God, look at verse 8. He is a man who utters, his mouth utters great boasts. He is a man who not only is a man, but he is a man who has great speaking abilities. He has a mouth uttering great boasts. He's a smooth talker. He's a gifted communicator who, with the help of the media, will deceive the world into believing every lie that he promotes. You know, it's interesting as we see today how easy it is for the world to be deceived by the media and the spin that wants to give on whomever it is that it wants to promote. We see today in our own world how wrong it can be made to look right and how bad is sold as good. And as we listen to some of these things that we hear on a regular basis, I ask the question of you that I ask of myself, how many of you have asked yourself this question, how in the world can people not see things as they really are? Have you ever uttered that one as you've been going through this whole process? How can people not see things the way they are? And the answer is very simple. Because the world does not have the moral compass that God's people have. The world does not have an anchor to go back to to fall upon and say, really looking at and what does God's word have to say about it? The, word, the world does not have the truth of God's word. Oh, it's available, but they just don't turn to it. Another interesting point is this. The world of unbelievers does not have the greatest benefit that every believer has, and that's the presence of the Holy Spirit within the life of the believer that teaches us what is right and what is wrong, who goes back to the Word of God, the Spirit of God. If you remember, Jesus said, when I go away, and you ought to thank God that I'm going, because when I go, I'm sending you a helper, the comforter, the Holy Spirit of God, who will teach you the things of truth, who will convict the world of sin, and righteousness and judgment. The bottom line is that God's people have within us the power of the Holy Spirit to discern and to understand what the world cannot see, that there is a difference between sin and there's a difference between righteousness. There's a difference between right and wrong, and it's clearly defined for God's people. But the world doesn't see it. 
And the world we live in today calls right, wrong, and wrong, right, and does what's right in its own sight. And that's the situation that we find ourselves in today. And it's a very sad, sad situation. But the Word of God teaches us that the world is coming to that. And yet, why do we all sit around and we're so, like, confused by it? What are you confused by? Don't be confused. Turn and open the Word of God and study it and spend some time with God. And guess what? God will give you clarity. You won't be confused anymore. Everything's right on target as far as God's plan is concerned, and things are moving in that direction. This man will be a man. This man will be a smooth communicator. One of the things that we need to recognize and understand is that we live in a day where we do not elect the best candidate for office. Hello? Anybody picking up on that? Who do we elect? The one that is sold to us over whatever media sources are brought before us on a regular basis. The turning point in the history of our country, I believe, as I was studying this and looking at it, was in the Nixon-Kennedy debates. The reason that Nixon lost the debates, and this isn't a judgment assessment of who the better candidate was. I'm making a simple point, and that says take it in context. The Nixon-Kennedy debates were won because John F. Kennedy came across better on TV than did Richard Nixon. And anybody and everybody who analyzes these things will tell you that. That was the turning point of the election. So now I stop and you think about this. Who do we elect today? The one who comes off best on TV. The one who is the smoothest communicator. The one who can give you the little folksy stories that people all like to see. The one who can cry on cue. The one who can sob when it's supposed to. Now sob. <laughs> you know, now smile. You know, and it's all there in a cue card we can't see as he looks into a camera and the guy holding behind it says, now be passionate about what you're about to say. I don't even know what I'm saying. It doesn't matter what you're saying. Just be passionate. Okay, I'll get elected. Just trust us. Listen to us. And that's the way it is. And then we all sit around today and we wonder why we're in such a mess that we're in today. Let me tell you something. Hello, get a clue. This nation elected somebody who came across smooth through the media, who was good looking, who was handsome, who was witty, who was charming, and who can sit right in and look in the camera and say, I didn't do this. Listen to me. I didn't do this. That Miss Lewinsky, whatever her name is, I didn't do that. And shake his finger right at the camera and the nation watches ultimately to find out the guy is lying through his teeth. And you know what? Till this point in time, there are no consequences for what he did. And you sit there and go, how can that happen? I'll tell you how it can happen. It's just the way that this world leader is going to arise. He's going to come up, he's a man, he's a smooth talker, he's a communicator, he's gifted at that, and the world's going to buy into it, and he can lie and tell you whatever you want to hear, and go out and do whatever he wants to do, and we don't measure his talk versus his, his, his actions, and it doesn't, mean any, it doesn't make any difference. It doesn't make any difference. What's interesting is, and here's another thing to throw out, look at verse 20 of chapter 7. What else do we know about him? He's a man, he's a gifted communicator, look at else. In verse 20... God gives us a, basically a very clear understanding that his appearance, he was larger in appearance than his associates. Which means what? He's tall. Some of you are going, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Oh, prophecy, it's so hard to understand. I'm so confused. What does this mean? There's got to be a hidden meaning. Hey, you know what? It means this. He was larger in appearance than those around him. What does that mean? Duh. It means he's taller than them. I can't help every time I see any type of world leadership meeting, people get together. The thing that the word of God always comes back to me and says, Who's the tallest guy there? <laughs> Who's the tallest guy? And you all and we all laugh about that, but you know what? That's just, that's how simple it is when you know the word of God. You just kinda go, God says he's taller than everybody else. Who's the tallest guy? 
And then you got to warn all your friends to keep an eye on him because we're not going to be here when they got to go through it because we're going to be gone anyway. Hello. You know, so it's like, who's call? And if you ever notice that, I tell you what, every time there's any kind of meeting at the White House, I'm always looking going, hey, you know what? It's pretty obvious who the tallest one is. <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. I am not saying what you're thinking. <laughs> but I am saying this. Don't miss the obvious. Don't miss the obvious. This coming world leader will be a man who will be smooth talker, who will be a gifted communicator, who will simply be taller than the people around him. And every time that you see it, and that's one of the other compelling arguments that this person, this nation, uh, could be very easily that little horn uh, that joins that economic European community because, hey, you know what? Most of the people in the United States are taller than people throughout the world. And that's a a generalization, but you know what? It's also a fact, too. All you got to do is take a look at the next meeting that comes there, and there's always one big guy in the middle saying, I did not do that. And (laughs) And then there's two or three or four shorter people that are standing around. So we need to look at that. Oh, we're running out of time. Um, all right, here we go. Okay, so those, those are some of those characteristics. Now, hey, for, for your own homework, read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 and 9 and 10. Because another one of the characteristics are that he will be empowered to do amazing things by Satan. If you were here for our study of the book of 2 Thessalonians, you also realize that, you know what, we went into great depths that this man will have the ability to deceive the masses of people by the signs and the wonders that he is able to do through the empowerment of Satan himself. One of his chief means of deceiving people will be his lead in a religious movement, which is interesting because if you think about Nebuchadnezzar for a moment, think about the last true world leader was Nebuchadnezzar, and one of the things that he tried to do, if you recall in our study in Daniel chapter 3, was set up an image to be worshipped, the image of himself which is fascinating as we look at the parallels between what this world is coming to. The bottom line is, is that this leader will also want to be worshipped as well. Turn with me in the book of Revelation chapter 13. Sit with me, bear with me. We've got to retreat next week and I'm not quitting until I get through this. So you want to leave, you can go ahead and leave. But if you want to stay, that's good too. Revelation chapter 13, look at verses 1 through 9 and look at the parallels that we find here. Revelation 13, 1 through 9. It says, and he stood on the sand of the seashore, and I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads, and on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was, look at this, was like a leopard, does that sound familiar? And his feet were like those of a bear, sounds familiar, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion, sounds familiar. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed, you notice that? One of his heads, as if it had been slain, but it never died, speaking of the Roman Empire, says that, and the whole earth was amazed and followed after this beast. The whole earth will be amazed that when this Roman Empire was revived, how similar it is to the Roman Empire of history that dominated this earth for a thousand years and seemingly disappeared into nowhere. It had what seemed like a fatal wound and it was self-inflicted from within, but here it comes, it resurrects itself back to life in these ten European nations or ten nations that gather together. And everyone in the world is amazed. And you know what also? They worshipped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshipped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And there was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months was given to him. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name and his tabernacle, that is those who dwell in heaven. And it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. 
and all who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, and with the sword he must be killed. Here's the perseverance and the faith of the saints. Go back to Daniel chapter 7 because the biblical portrait becomes very clear that this man will have a conflict with God. We see it in Revelation 13. We see it again in Daniel chapter 7. Look at verse 21. And I kept looking, Daniel says, in that horn which was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. In verse 25, he will speak out against the Most High God. That particular person who ends up being a world leader will speak out against God and speak out against the people of God. So not only does he have a conflict with God, but he has a conflict with God's people. Now here's something that's very exciting to me, and we just saw that in Revelation 13, and you probably missed it because you weren't really paying attention. And that's this. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where you will find the word saints referring to the church. It always refers to the nation of Israel. This is very important. And you say, well, how can, you, how can you prove that? Read Ephesians chapter 5. Because to the, to the Old Testament saints, the church is a mystery that was later revealed by the word of God. The church is a mystery that was later revealed. The nation of Israel was always convinced that Israel was the chosen people. That Israel is God's chosen people. That the promises for Israel were true of just the nation of Israel. Later we find in the New Testament that God now, because of Israel's rejection of Messiah, that the whole world was extended an invitation to anyone who would believe in Jesus Christ. They would become a part of the children. They would become children of God to those who believe in His name. They would become part of the family of God. So now what we have here is we've got this world leader who basically promises to protect Israel and, and her as a nation. And also, the rebuilding of the temple will take place and all the things that the nation of Israel would like, the repossession of the land, the rebuilding of the temple, this world leader will promise all of those things, but ultimately will turn his back on the nation of Israel, the people of God, the saints of God that we read here in this particular passage. Now, if you notice, in Revelation 13, we're told that the whole world will worship this individual except who? Except the saints. The saints of the New Testament referring to those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are conspicuously absent from any of that's taken place here on the face of the earth during this period of time where the Bible calls the tribulation period, which is really exciting and encouraging to me as we consider what this world is coming to. It's important that we understand this world leader is going to have conflict with God. He will blaspheme the name of God. He will have conflict with the people of God. In this particular case, the nation of Israel specifically. And that at the midway point, as we see here, as we look that he will have a time and a times and a half a time, referring to three and a half years, at the three and a half year period of time, he will turn his back on everything that he promises and he shows who he really is. And that is the devil himself impersonated in the form of this world leader. Notice that he will have control. He will have control in, in seven, verse 25 and he will speak out against the most high God and wear down the saints of the highest one. And notice this, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hand for a time, times and a half a time. Isn't that interesting? Notice what this guy's going to do. He's going to have complete control over everything that takes place in the world. The last person that could do that was Nebuchadnezzar. If you recall, he was the last person that said, what I say goes. And he always got himself in a lot of trouble, but he could also get himself out of trouble because he could just change his mind. Oh, I made a mistake, I changed my mind. But if you remember the Medes and the Persians, when Cyrus made a mistake or Darius made a mistake, they couldn't change their mind because they were subject to the laws of the Medes and Persians. He was the last 
world leader, world dictator, world king that could just call his own shots. This is going to be true of this coming world leader. We live in a world that's messed up. Nobody will deny that. And the thing that keeps it messed up is what? Bureaucracy. Think about it. Crime, poverty, what else? Drugs, alcohol, lack of education, all, all this stuff. Abortion, everything that's going on around us. Think about how messed up and corruption within government. See, you know, what's fascinating about that is this. Guess what? If you were king of the world, or you were a world leader, or you were a dictator who could basically call the shots, you know what you could do? You could really clean up a whole bunch of mess that's going on. Because you don't have lobbyists anymore who get in the way. You don't have any government bureaucracies. You don't have anybody who you have to scratch their back and they'll scratch yours. You don't have anybody you have to pay under the table to get something moved or accomplished. Guess what? If you're in control of everything, you can just call the shots and things can be exactly where you want it. And you know what? That's exactly what this world is looking for. We live in a world that is hungry for a savior. Someone who can come in and just clean this mess all up. That can just call the shots and the bureaucrats aren't going to win. The lobbyists aren't going to win. You know, you stop and look at it and go, wouldn't it be easy just to do this? And then you dig into it and you find out it would be if you didn't have all these people trying to stop you who basically have a vested interest because it affects their pocketbook. But if you didn't care what was going on because, guess what? You didn't elect me. You can't get rid of me. Think about that for a second. Wouldn't that be a sweet way to run the world? I don't have to tell you what you want to hear. I'm just going to tell you the way it is. And if you don't like it, eh, where are you going to go? It's my planet. You can't even get off. Where are you going? And he's going to call the shots. And his control is going to be decisive. What's fascinating as we look at that, God says this, but it will only be given to him for a time, times, and a half a time. Notice also what he's going to do. Not only will he change the laws of the world, he will try to change time itself. Think about this. Our calendar system throughout the world revolves around one person, and his name is Jesus Christ. Before Christ, A.D., in the year of our Lord, the world recognizes that this world revolves around Jesus Christ. Not to this leader, it doesn't. This leader will come, and he's going to change the calendar. He will change times, and it will revolve around him. Isn't that interesting? We already see in the world that we live in today, there's a movement to get rid of that whole system. There's also a problem that's going on, and we look at it, it's the year 2000 computer glitch, that maybe the message created by all of this, there'll be a void that someone can step up and say, you know what, I got the perfect solution. Seemingly insignificant, out of nowhere, the person shows up, and it resolves the greatest problem the world has up to this point ever experienced collectively. And the world goes, wow, come on. We'll embrace that. Interesting, isn't it? But I want you to notice something. That his control is given for a limited period of time and his conclusion, don't miss that, in verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. In verse 11, then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. The ultimate conclusion of this man's administration will be destruction and judgment by God himself. 
Now, as we look at all this and put it all together, you're thinking, well, what, what, I don't understand. What does this have to do? Where are we going with all this? What's the point of studying this? Go back to, with me to verse 9 for a second. I want you to notice the execution of the judgment of God. Remember now that Daniel has a dream, and within the dream are several visions. We just saw this portrait of a coming leader, but at the same time as Daniel's looking at this portrait of a coming leader, there's another scene that's taking place, and this scene is taking place in heaven. And I don't want you to miss that. In verse 9, he says this, I kept looking until thrones were set up. Judgment. And the Ancient of Days, God is judged throughout the Old Testament, took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, speaking of purity. And the hair of his head was like pure wool, speaking of wisdom. We see pictures of that all throughout the world in courtrooms throughout the world where justices will sit down and they've got white wigs that are on. And basically, the, the, uh, the word picture that's being played out is the same one that we see here, indicating wisdom and indicating justice. And it says that here we see a picture of God and the hair of his head is like pure wool, speaking of wisdom. His throne was ablaze with flames. Flames always refers to judgment in Scripture. Its wheels were a burning fire. And you can go back and look at Ezekiel chapter 1 and see the vision that Ezekiel had of the glory of God. It says, And a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. And I kept looking because of the sound. Can you imagine? Now here's what Daniel sees and here's what we need to see as God's people. Out of one side or one television, now we were in, a, where was it, like an electronics place, and, and it's kind of like every guy's dream. They, had, they were showing like a direct TV, and there was like 50 TV sets going on at the same time. It was, I, was, I could have stayed there forever. I was just like, whoa, look at that. And there's another one over here, and look at all this. There's just different scenes that are taking place all around. And so basically what Daniel's seeing is, is this. Out of one screen, he's seeing this arrogant, little, insignificant, boastful man who was just basically, you know, calling himself God... And on the other scene, he sees God in his full glory sitting in judgment of this arrogant little man. And he says, and I saw this, and because of the sound of the boastful words that the horn was speaking, I kept looking until the beast was slain. It was as if Daniel was saying, look at how awesome God is, and look how insignificant this person is. How long is this awesome God going to put up with this little insignificant clod of dirt? Not very long. We saw the same thing in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. How long will you be arrogant and brag before God? Because there is a day coming, and I want you to see this, and I don't want you to miss it. And I kept looking in verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, speaking of angels, Acts 1, 9, one like a son of man. This is the first time that the, the phrase son of man is used of Jesus Christ. One like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days as was presented before him. And to him was given dominion. Dominion, speaking of power to rule. Glory, the result of his rule. It says, and a kingdom, the area of his rule, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Then the sovereignty in verse 27, the dominion and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. And his kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. You look at that and you go back to Daniel chapter 2, and you remember the conclusion of the vision was this. There is a rock that's coming out of heaven, the rock of all ages. And he will come and he will destroy any recollection of these four great world empires. Every one of them will vanish into human history. And there's a day coming, the Bible says, that therefore God highly exalted upon him the name that is greater than any other name that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee will bow of those in heaven 
and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess to the glory of God that He is the Christ, the Savior of the world. The principle and the point of prophecy is this, that man's hope does not lie in man, but lies in the character and the promises of God. That's what this is all about. Man's hope does not lie in man. Man's hope does not lie in change of external circumstances and environment. Man's hope, your only hope, my only hope, is that I have a changed heart that's made right before God. The Bible says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things pass away. All things become new. Nebuchadnezzar's only hope wasn't this great empire that he had, this head of gold, this big image that he built. His only hope before God was a broken and contrite heart that God will never despise. His only hope was to bow his knee and confess with his mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Your only hope is the same. My only hope is the same. And the only hope for this world is the same. That's the message of God's love that's found in the gospel, the good news, the great news. Who can set us free from the mess that we're in? Thank God for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. The bottom line is this. If you do not believe in Jesus Christ, if you do not confess Him as Lord and Savior, if you do not agree with God that you are a sinner, that there's nothing good in you, and that there's no hope within you and of you yourself, and if you do not believe in Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, that His death on the cross paid the penalty once and for all, if you don't believe that, then the Bible says that you will be subject to the judgment of God that will pass upon this earth, that you will be here when God's people leave, and you will need to know what we're sharing with you today. You will need to know what the Bible says about a coming world leader. You will need to know that he will appear insignificant. You will need to know that he comes out of this ten nations that rise up in Europe. You will need to know all the things that we're learning today, because once you see that the word of God is true, then and only then do you have any hope, and you better drop on a knee and believe the word of God to be true. See, our problem today is that we don't believe God's word. And we have to and we must because it's true. And only God's word is true and only God's word will set us free from everything that's going to take place on the face of this earth. You know, we look at this and we, and we start to ask ourselves the question, what's the purpose of studying prophecy? Can I throw out some suggestions to you in conclusion? Number one is, you know what? It should motivate us. It should cause us to be obedient to the word of God. It should motivate us to become obedient to the Word of God because we should be convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt based on prophecy and fulfilled prophecy that what God says is true. Think about it. What He said about Babylon is true. What He said about the Medes and the Persians is, became true. What He said about the Greco-Macedonian Empire is true. What He said about the Roman Empire is true. What He says about the resurrection of the Roman Empire and the ten-nation confederacy, though we haven't seen it yet, that also is true. And it's going to happen just as He said. What He says about this coming world leader is true. God's Word is truth, and we need to start to believe it and live accordingly. Prophecy changed Daniel's life to the point where it affected every decision that he made every day because everything that he did, he evaluated against the objective standard of the Word of God. The second thing is this. We need to warn others of the certainty of God's judgment. The reason that you and I are here still on this earth if you've come to know Christ is the fact that God wants to use us to be a light in darkness. He wants us to warn our friends and family and co-workers and anybody that will come across our path. He wants us to be able to point to them in the Word of God and say, hey, the reason you don't see things is because you don't have the ability to see things as God sees them. You are spiritually dead. You have no discerning abilities. 
You are dead in your sins, and until you agree with God that that's true, and until you invite Christ in your life, the Spirit of God does not indwell you, does not reside in you, and you can't see things from God's perspective. And we need to warn people of the coming judgment of God. We need to tell everyone who will listen of the necessity to repent in order to escape the judgment that will come across this world. We need to also assure us, as we look at this, as I look at the Word of God, you know what's the one, most wonderful thing of it all to me? Is that God is completely in control. That is the most wonderful thing. Do you realize that, you know what? If the markets go south, you lose all your money, you lose everything you have here on the face of the earth, that the most wonderful assurance is this, that we are still within the hands of God and that God loves His people. And even if it comes down to this, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of the saints. What's the worst thing that happen? You die? Hey, absent from the body, present with the Lord. I don't see that as a bad thing. In fact, sometimes I'm like looking forward to it. You know, I don't know what kind of business you're in, but in the construction industry, I'm like, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. You know, and, I, and sometimes that's the only time that we look for his return. And I want to just tell you something. You know what? Stop looking for Christ's return when things are going bad in your life. And start looking for his return every minute of every day. And you know what? It'll change the way you see everything around you. It'll change your life. There is great hope in the word of God. There is great truth in the word of God. And the word of God and prophecy included. You know what? It's like the guy floating around the desert. He doesn't know when he's going to need to tie. But let me just tell you something. It's going to come in handy. That's the truth of God's word. I don't know when I'm going to need it. But I'll tell you this. When I have it and I've got instruction, there's always a way that God can use it in our life to impact the people around us. And I just say this, praise God for His Word because His Word is true. Father, thank You for this. We just thank You for this time. We thank You for the book of Daniel and for all the prophecy that's laid out, the prophecy that has come true and also the prophecy that will come true. God, help us to be totally and 100% convinced upon the reliability of Your Word that when You say it, it's a trustworthy statement. God, may it affect the way that we live and the urgency that we have in telling friends and family of the coming judgment of God. And that their only hope, the good news, the great news of the gospel, is that you first loved us, even when we are yet sinners and rebellion against you, that you sent Christ to die for us. And you tell us that whosoever will may come, that any of us, as we confess our sin and agree with you, that we're, we're sinners before you, that there's none righteous, no, not one. And as we turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, you say that all are invited, all may come, and it's your desire that all may be saved from the judgment that is to come upon this world. God, we just thank you for that. And we praise you for the wonderful mercy and the wonderful forgiveness that we have in Christ. And we just thank you and praise you in his wonderful name. Amen.